in Genesis 42 through 44 this morning. As, as you turn there, just kind of highlight some things we've already talked about uh, this morning. Uh, first of all, I just encourage you to be signing up for Gospel Institute classes on Monday night. If you're interested in that, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But we're offering a class on how to study your Bible and then also on uh, counseling, on biblical counseling, soul care of one another, discipleship. Uh, it's just a neat opportunity. I encourage you to consider being a part of that. And then, of course, this morning is Care Group Sunday and Ministry Sunday. And if you are not a part of a care group and, part, and are part of our, our church uh, community, I encourage you to, to be a part of a, a care group. It's one of the primary ways in which we uh, allow uh, one another to, to kind of get into each other's lives. And so uh, you can sign up for those in the hallway there this morning. Then also, again, uh, just our children's ministry. I encourage you, if you are not a part of our children's ministry, to consider being a part of that. There are just some uh, some big opportunities there. Uh, we've had to make some some changes in how we're doing children's care uh, next year because of uh, some of the, the opportunities, the needs there. And so I uh, encourage you to, to think about, is God calling you to be a faithful shepherd of our kids. Someone was telling me this morning, they were talking to someone else, they said, boy, if someone just spent a month with these kids, they would, there would never be, uh, if, if everyone in the church spent a month with these kids, there would never be a vacancy in any slot because it's such a profoundly rewarding ministry. These kids are so great. They're beautiful kids. I know this because some of them are mine, and uh, it's just a neat, neat place to be on a Sunday morning. Please consider being a part of that. And then also, uh, if you're newer to the church, there's a lunch after this service in Banquet Room A, uh, so come and be a part of that. Uh, we'll be there, just kind of an opportunity to get to know each other, and so if you're new to the church, love to have you come to that lunch after the service. Well, we're in uh, Genesis. We've been in Genesis 41 last week, and the famine began. And then in chapters 42, we see how the famine is affecting Joseph's family back in Canaan. The brothers are sent to Egypt to buy food. Uh, they are uh, accused of being spies, and then they are sent back to bring back Benjamin while Simeon remains a prisoner of Joseph in Egypt. And then the brothers return with Benjamin. And uh, again, there's, there's, there's tension as the brothers leave, and there's this... Uh, the Benjamin is accused of stealing Joseph's cup. And then we come to Genesis 44, and we'll talk about all this more this morning, but we don't have time to read all these chapters. But if you come to Genesis 44, we're going to read 14, Genesis 14 through the end of 44, as Judah and his brothers, the, the, the 10 brothers come back to, or 11 brothers come back to Joseph's house and interact with him, and we see jo Judah's response, and in his response, he kind of brings us up on some of the things in the story as well. So if you would, stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, beginning in verse 14 of Genesis 44. When Judah and his brother came, brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. <clears throat> they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. 
Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he, that's Joseph, said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And then Judah went up to him and said, O oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to his servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him again since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. You may be seated. May God grant us grace through his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these chapters that you've put in your word to us. We thank you for the ability we have this morning to worship you together, uh, to read these words and to, to be mindful of them and to, to think about you. And uh, We ask that you would help us as we think about you to uh, be encouraged as we think about your provision, your love for us to be mindful as we think about the reality of sin in our own lives and to be, to be hopeful as we think about your, your great forgiveness through your faith in your son, Jesus. I pray for those hurting this morning as they think about things in, in their past and, and harm done to them or, or harm they've done to others, that we've done to others. I ask for your, your grace as we think about how to deal with that in a way that brings you honor and glory. Pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. It was early Wednesday morning, probably about 4.30 in the morning, and I was actually already running late to something that I was supposed to be at, and so I was kind of in a hurry getting ready, and I, I looked over at the, at the shower, 
And I noticed that there was water still kind of draining slowly in the shower. And I noticed this the last couple days. And I thought, well, I just need to take a, a second real quick and, 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 and see what I can do. And I went over to the drain and I, I popped the cover off the drain. And by the way, if, if gross stories bother you, um, just a warning here. Whitney, I was telling Whitney I was going to share this, and she said, well, and she's okay with us being transparent, but she thinks there's a line, and this may be a little close. So I, I pop open the, the drain to the, the shower and or the cover on the drain, and, and there, sure enough, there's just like this, there's this little bit of, of hair that I see. And so I just kind of reach down, and I, I think I'm just going to pull out this little, little thing of hair and this little hairball, and I, I reach down, and I start to pull, and, and I continue to pull, and it's like this, this pillar of hair. It's this, this thick thing, and, and it just it kind of it starts, and I start to pull, and I start to pull, and I start to pull, and I'm thinking, this is incredibly disgusting and kind of cool. Um, it's this wet, dense glob of, of, of hair beast, and I, I continue to pull. I'm not kidding. It went above my knee, this, this pillar of, of goop, and it may have I don't think it got to my head, but it was really high. And so I pick up and then and plop it down there on the shower. And I'm thinking, that's cool. That's disgusting. I wonder if I should wake up Whitney to show her. <laughs> she did not want to see the glob of hair, but I took a picture and showed it to her later. And so if you'd like to see it, I also have it. We can talk after service. Maybe at the newcomer meal, for those of you <laughs> But they say, the expression is, you know, uh, down the drain. Like, it means something that's gone forever. Like, that's money down the drain. That, that's not true in our house. It means see you in five to ten years, apparently. You know, it's down the drain, see you later. And I, I share that with you because uh, for some of you, for some of us, that's how things in our past are as well. There may be things that, that have happened to you in the past, bad things, or things that you've done to other people that were bad things, and your thought is, okay, well, that was bad. I, I'm, I'm sad that I did that to that other person, or I'm sad that I committed this sin, but it's, it's kind of down the drain. You know, it's, it's, it's in the past, and I, I don't have to, to deal with it anymore. It's, it's, it's ancient history. And so a month goes by, or, or two months go by, or a year, and, and then things that you think are down the drain, things that you think are, are past, come up in a very unpleasant muck, and there they are in your shower, and you have to deal with them. There's something that you did in your past, and you think I can, if enough time goes by, I can bury it deeply enough and not have to think about it anymore, and yet the reality is it's still there. You still have to deal with it. There's still that, that goop, that, that, that muck that you have to confront and figure out, how am I ever going to get rid of this? How long is this going to affect me? It's interesting, God in his providence in several ways this, this past week has kind of brought to mind 
the past and, and sin and, and shame and, and how many of us struggle with how to rightly deal with the past. Some of it, the ways that God has done that is in conversations with, with some of you, uh, articles that I've read. I read a, a book, and one of the chapters in the book I was reading was about the Holy Spirit's involvement in, in counseling and discipling people, soul care. And the chapter mentions this, this illustration. It says, imagine that someone comes to you to talk about a problem in their life. It's a couple. And, and by the way, when I say that, imagine someone comes to you to talk about a problem in your life. Just as an aside here, what would you do if someone did that? Hopefully you have relationships with other people in the church where they would feel comfortable doing that. And if you say, I don't know how I would handle that situation, good news, another plug, Monday night, biblical counseling classes, encourage you to come and be a part of that. Another plug, care groups, be involved in that, allow those relationships to exist. Where was I? Imagine, this, this book I was reading, just giving this illustration, imagine that you were talking with this couple. And they begin to tell you about the things that are going on in their, their marriage relationship. And, and as you talk, you realize that the, the wife is struggling with, with shame from things from years ago. And the, the husband is, is struggling with shame and guilt from things he did years ago. And as you think about that, you, you realize, okay, this, this couple, neither one of them has dealt with the past in, in a God-glorifying way. And your heart aches for them to be able to handle the past as God would have them handle the past. And the point that this chapter I was reading the book was making is the good news is as much as you love this couple and as much as you want them to deal with the issues in the past, the good news is that, that God loves this couple even more than you do. And the Holy Spirit loves them even more than you do and even more than you want them to deal with the past in a God-glorifying way. The Holy Spirit wants them to deal with the past in a God-glorifying way. And the Holy Spirit can help you as you talk with them and the husband and the wife as they think about how to do that in a way that appropriately handles the things of the past. This chapter, these chapters in Genesis are about the past. And what we see in these chapters is that the salvation that the Redeemer, and again, Joseph here is a picture of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the salvation that the Redeemer offers is more than just a physical salvation. Joseph offers a physical deliverance for his brothers, but he also offers a spiritual deliverance. And, and God in his graciousness doesn't just save the brothers physically. He also works to bring about a spiritual restoration, a spiritual deliverance from things from their past. The Redeemer, Joseph here, brings back the past to his brothers, not as payback, not as some sort of vengeful uh, revenge play, but he brings back the past to his brothers so that they can deal with it as God would have them deal with it, and there can be complete and full spiritual restoration. And that's what I want us to think about this morning as well. God's salvation of you is more than just the physical deliverance of your body from hell. God's deliverance for you goes, goes deeper than that. God's salvation 
offers you freedom from past sins through joyful Christ-centered repentance. Let me say that again. God's salvation offers freedom for you from past sins. It offers freedom from past sins through joyful Christ-centered repentance. Let me offer another aside here. I want to be clear what I am and am not talking about when I talk about joyful Christ-centered repentance and dealing with the past. Some of us have pain and shame and guilt from our past that we haven't dealt with as God would, would have us deal with because there's, there's sins that we have committed against other people. And the answer there is for us to cling to Christ. And one of the, the fruits of clinging to Christ is repentance, for, for repentance from sins we've committed. So that's for those of us who, as we think about the past, we think about things we've done. Now, also, there are some of us who are struggling with, with things from the past that were actually not things we did to others, but things that others may have done to us. Now, the answer is the same in the sense of, of also clinging to Christ, and yet the fruit for you is, is not going to be repentance because there's nothing to repent of. I, I want to encourage you with that. Both the sinner who feels shame because of the past and the person who's been sinned against and who feels shame about the past, the answer for, the both, for both of us is repentance. Or the, the answer for both of us is clinging to Christ. And for some of us, that will mean repentance. For others of us, it just means joy. Here's, here's three thoughts that I think will help us think rightly about the past and, and shame and repentance this morning. Three, three thoughts that help us there. Here's, here's the first. Sin, sin won't stay put in the past. Sin won't stay put in the past. Look at your Bibles with me, if you would, and begin there in verse 1 of chapter 42. Or actually, it's at the end of chapter 41. Remember what's happened. The end of chapter 41, it says, The famine had spread over all the land, and, and Joseph has opened the storehouses. He's sold to the Egyptians. The, sam- the famine is severe in the land of Egypt. But we see in verse 57, not only is the famine severe in Egypt, it's severe all over the earth. And so all the earth, all people are coming in this, in this area to Joseph to buy grain. And we come to chapter 42. Who does that include? Chapter 42 kind of begins like, meanwhile, back in Canaan, what's going on with Joseph and Joseph's brothers and their father? Well, Jacob and his family, we find, are also in danger of starvation there. Jacob talks to his sons and says, guys, why do you just sit around looking at each other? Why don't you do something productive to deal with this situation that we're in? He says, go down and and buy grain for us in Egypt that we may, and this is an expression that you're going to see, or an idea or an expression that you're going to see throughout these chapters. Do this so that we may live and not die. Our, Our physical bodies are in danger of perishing. I need you to go down Egypt buy the grain so that we can live and not die. And so the brothers go. They go and they appear before Joseph. We're going to kind of go through some sections quickly here so we get through all these chapters. They go down and they they bow down before Joseph and Joseph sees his brothers. He recognizes them, but he pretended like he didn't. He treats them roughly. He asks where they're from and he recognizes them. They don't recognize, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. 
Here he is, this Egyptian official, much older than their brother Joseph, clean-shaven, speaking a different language through an interpreter we'll read later. Who are you? And they, they're going to begin to tell him. But before they tell him, look at verse 9. Because verse 9 is very important for us to understand in order to, to grasp Joseph's motives and what he does next. Here's Joseph. He's standing before his brothers. They're, they're bowed down. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. It says, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Why is that important for us to understand? It means that what he's about to do is, is not motivated out of vengeance. In other words, verse 9 doesn't say, and Joseph looked at his brothers and he remembered being stuck in that pit and he thought to himself, this is going to be fun. It doesn't say Joseph looked at his brothers and thought to himself, how can I make them feel the same pain that I felt? No, what it says is that he, he remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And remember what we know about Joseph's dreams. Joseph and the dreams that he encounters that other people have. Joseph has the ability to understand God's divine message, his special revelation that points people to a redeemer. That's the purpose of these dreams. And so Joseph, as he, as he meditates and thinks very quickly here about the dreams that he has, he understands the significance of what God was revealing to him. He recognizes that these dreams represented his, his ability to, to save his family. And he recognizes, I believe, not just that there's going to be a physical deliverance that he's able to offer, but he recognizes God's sovereign hand in this and that he's going to be able to be the means of his brother's spiritual salvation as well. We're going to see this in coming chapters as he talks about what he, what he sees God doing through this circumstance, God's, God's deliverance through his hand. We see that Joseph, it's very important to understand this, we see that Joseph, as he, as he puts his brothers through these tests, his purpose is not one of vindictiveness, not of judgment, but of grace. It's very, very important to understand. So he accuses them of being spies. And they deny the accusation. They say, no, 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 we're not spies, and we're the sons of one man, and uh, he's one father, and they tell him about their father, they tell him about their brother, and they tell him about this other brother who's no more. And they, they have this expression, they say, we're, we're honest men, which Joseph understood was a bit of a stretch because he knew about their deception. He had heard their plans for his being sold into slavery and them telling his father that he was dead. So he knew that saying that they were honest men was a bit of a stretch. But he accuses them. He, he puts them in jail. He says, I'm going to put all of you in jail, but I'll let one return. And then he comes back and he puts them in jail for three days and brings them out and says, okay, I'm going to, he says this in, in verse 18, again, this idea of, of life. He says, do this and you will live for I fear God. He says, I'm going to let one of you remain. The others can go. And then if you want to see my face again, bring back your youngest brother. 
And then the brothers begin to speak. And they don't know that Joseph is able to understand what they say, but listen to, listen to what his brothers say. They're all speaking. Verse 21. In truth we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. There are the ten brothers before Joseph. And it's been 20 years since they've encountered Joseph. And I don't know what the last 20 years has been like for these brothers as they think about what they did to Joseph. Perhaps for some of them it's, it's been something they've thought about occasionally. You know, maybe, maybe Levi isn't all that bothered by it. Sometimes he thinks about it and goes, oh yeah, I wish I could do that one different. Maybe Simeon thinks about it all the time. Every day, Simeon, it's somehow brought to Simeon's mind. Maybe, maybe um, Judah is, is one that thought about it a lot at the beginning, but then some time went by and he kind of thought he was past it. Then, then more time went by and all of a sudden he was thinking about it again more frequently. Or there'd be something that, that Benjamin would do that would remind him of Joseph and, and this, the, the guilt of what he had done comes to weigh on him. Or maybe he watched how his, his father had been affected by what they did, and, and every day that he sees his, his father and looks at, at his father's response to losing the son, there's this, this guilt that he feels. I, I don't know exactly what has happened over the last 20 years in these brothers' lives, but at this moment, what we understand is that the brothers see this, see this thing that's happening to them right now, and they connect the dots to 20 years ago. They say this, this thing that's happening now is, is, is what, because of what we did 20 years ago. Reuben says, Reuben uses the phrase, um, this is a reckoning for his blood. The past doesn't stay past. The past doesn't stay nicely put. There's this a short story by Edgar Allan Poe called The Tell-Tale Heart. In the story, there's this narrator, and he's incredibly arrogant. There's, there's someone he wants to kill, and he talks about how he, he's, he was very smart in how he planned this, this murder that he committed and, and how, how brilliantly he did it and, and how cool he was as he did it. And he talks about hiding the body underneath his, his floor and then how the police come and, and how calmly he interacts with them. But then as he interacts with the police, he begins to hear this, this beating of a heart. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. And it gets louder and louder. And he thinks that everyone can hear it. And it's, this, it's his conscience. And, and finally he just blurts out a confession. Can't take it anymore. As smug as he thought he was, as brilliant as he thought his crime was, the past wouldn't stay in the past. The past has a stubborn way of coming back to us. 
And maybe our, our temptation is to think that this, this reality that the past doesn't stay in the past is a bad thing. Our temptation is to say it's a, it's a scary thing to think about how, how strong our conscience can be and how something that we did to someone 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 30 years ago, some relationship that went bad or some, some sin that we've committed that we've kept hidden, our temptation can be to think that the fact that that can still bother us is a bad thing. It'd be so much better if, if things would just go down the drain and stay down the drain and the muck wouldn't come back and just kind of plop itself back down in our lives. We read a passage like Luke 12 where Jesus says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or nothing is hidden that will not be known. And we hear that, that passage and we think, oh, that's terrible. That's frightening. That's scary to think about. But let me encourage you, it's actually a good thing. It's actually a very good thing. When Jesus says there's nothing revealed that won't be hidden, it's not a threat. He's not saying, so take that. When God promises that the past is not going to stay hidden, that's not some sort of act of a vindictive God. If we were able to conceal our sins from God, if, if the past would stay put in the past, we would still be guilty. God couldn't deal with it. Some of us believe, okay, I, I, can, I can bury the past. Reuben, Reuben thinks it's been 20 years still there. If time could fix guilt, it would have worked in this situation. Some of us think, well, okay, I know, I, I know the past can't stay in the past, but maybe shame is the answer. Maybe if I, if I feel enough shame and guilt, then I can somehow make atonement for my sin. And maybe the response to the sin of my past is just to feel shame. And so I'm, I, every time I think about that, I, or every time I think about um, what I could be, I think, no, 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 I'm a sinner. I can't think these nice thoughts about um, being a, a good person because of what I've done in the past. I need, to, I need to feel this shame. So some of us think I can bury it and ignore it. Some of us think I can, can somehow atone for it through shame. And both responses keep us stuck in the past. They keep us in the rut that is the past. A cycle of shame and guilt that, that prevents what God would have us do. You can't outrun your past. It has to be dealt with. And that's not a curse. It's a good thing. Because there's a better way to deal with it. Here's a second thought from these chapters that I think helps us think rightly about the past and shame and repentance. It's, it's this. Situations that seem like judgment may actually be moments of grace. Situations that you and I find ourselves in that, that seem like moments of judgment may actually be moments of grace. Circumstances that are even designed to bring us to repentance may feel like judgment. Here's, here's what happens next in the story. So you know, the brothers, they load their dark donkeys, they, they depart. One of them opens his sack, it doesn't tell us which brother later in the journey, and, and he sees the money, and he tells his brothers, look, my money's been put 
back. Here it is in, my, in, in the mouth of my sack. And, and how would your response be if you found your money in a, in a situation like this? Oh, I should probably take it back. I should probably figure this out. Listen to, what, listen to how they respond. What does it tell us about the state of their conscience? When they see it, their hearts failed them. And they turn trembling on one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? This circumstance seems like God's judgment to the brothers. They go back to Canaan. They tell their father what's happened. Their father is is quite upset. They find that all of their money has been put into their sacks and they're distressed. Reuben, it's interesting if you do a kind of a study of Reuben, Reuben makes a suggestion to his father. Look, uh, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. No one listens to Reuben. Then you come to chapter 43. The famine continues. Dad tells the brothers to go again to buy the grain, and the brothers remind him about the need to send Benjamin. And Judah convinced him. Judah says, look, if, if you don't let him go, he's, he's just going to die here. And so Judah relen- uh, Jacob relents. And Jacob suggests that they take double the money back and these gifts back to, to Joseph. And so the brothers return. They go down to Egypt. They stand before Joseph. Or they, they stand before Joseph. And he tells, Joseph tells the men to, to go into his house. His, his steward takes them into the house. And the brothers are afraid again, right? Brothers are afraid. They think that they're going to be assaulted, it says in verse 18. They have this feast with Joseph. And after this feast with Joseph, they again begin to, to, to prepare to travel away. And the men's money is put in their, their sacks of food again. And then Joseph tells his steward to put his cup in Benjamin's sack. The brothers begin travel, the steward overtakes them, accuses them of stealing the cup. They say, that's ridiculous. Whoever has it will die. They all lower their sacks. They start at the oldest and they go down and there it is in Benjamin's sack. And that's the darkest moment of all. In verse 13, it says, they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Joseph is forcing issues to the surface. Joseph, what, what, it's, what Joseph is doing seems cruel. And it's these, these moments in which we see Joseph turning away from his brothers and, and weeping, and we see that his, his desire is not vindictive for his brothers. We see that there's a great love that he has for his brothers. And as we see his, his purposes in this, we understand his purposes are not to bring about judgment upon his brothers, but to bring about restoration. And, and the same is true in our relationship with God. As we look at the circumstances in our lives, sometimes our temptation can be to connect the dots between our present and our past. And as we see the dots between our our present and our past connected, we see, ah, therefore, this difficult situation that I'm in, in the present, that's related to my past, means that that God is being vindictive here, that, that, that God is somehow trying to pay me back for the things that I've done or punishing me for the things that I've done. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that you're reading God wrongly. 
Uh, today's my, my 17-year anniversary of, of our wedding. And what's interesting to me is I think about the perspective that 17 years in a relationship gives you. What's, what's interesting is those moments in my relationship with Whitney that I, that I thought were kind of valleys have actually turned out to be just amazing moments where God's grace was revealed and, and growth happened exponentially in our relationship and in our individual lives. As you think about God this morning, perhaps your temptation is to view God as someone who wants to punish you. As a God who is perpetually upset and disappointed with you and expresses that disappointment through causing you to feel difficult circumstances. As we think about this reality that, that situations that seem like judgment may actually be, be moments of grace, th- there's a couple thoughts that, that I think will help us process moments appropriately. Here's one. God's people are not under condemnation. If you're a child of God, you are not under God's condemnation. What does Romans 8.1 tell us? Romans 8.1 says that, that um, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you've been united with Christ through faith in him, you are not under God's condemnation. You're a child of God. God's purpose in your life is not to bring about judgment and condemnation, but to bring about about a closer relationship with him. In fact, think about what his ultimate purpose is for you. God desires you to to love him. He desires you to experience the, the joy of loving him and being in a relationship with him. He desires to receive glory from your love for him as you see his value and his beauty. Now, if that's God's ultimate purpose, if God's ultimate purpose is for you to love him, how does that affect how you view the situations in which he's placing you? He is placing you in those situations to grow your love for him. What is... Paul tells us in Romans 2, he says it's it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So we're not under condemnation. Another thought here that I think is helpful is, therefore, the testings and difficulties we we encounter are are for our growth in different areas. And this includes repentance. Exodus 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Deuteronomy 8.16 talks about God who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know. Why? That he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. God's purposes are for our good. He loves us. We therefore, another thought here is that we should respond to these situations as seeing them as moments of God's grace and, and crying out to him in love. Zechariah 13.9, he talks about uh, discipline. He says, I'm going to refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. 
I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. When we see the dots of connection between the present and the past, the purpose of God in that is not to bring about shame, but to bring about repentance, clinging to him, complete restoration and absolute dealing with that which is in the past. And that brings us to the third thought here. Repentance means recognizing your sin, acknowledging your guilt, and turning to Christ. And again, this is, I'm talking about for sin that, that we've done, not sin that's been done against us. The answer is also clinging to Christ, but clinging to Christ doesn't bring the fruit of repentance for someone who hasn't sinned. It brings joy of, of knowing that they're in Christ. But look at the story again. Look at verse 14 of, of chapter 44. Judah and his brothers notice the prominence that Judah has here. They come before Joseph. They fall before him on the ground. Joseph says, what have you done? Uh, and then uh, Judah says, look, here's his response in verse 16. What shall we say? Now, Judah could have said, look, I don't know what happened. We didn't do it. Perhaps you're steward. I don't know. It's kind of a crazy situation. We are. He could have gone back to what he said in chapter 4. Look, we're, we're honest men. Judah, says, Judah doesn't say that anymore. He doesn't say, we're honest men. That facade has been dealt with. He doesn't quibble. He doesn't say, well, we kind of did something in the past. We didn't do that. Nah. He just look. I can't. I, I have no answer. God, he says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. And Joseph says, look, I'm not going to take all of you. I'm just going to take the one who had the cup. And Judah responds to that, and he kind of, he kind of talks about what's happened here. And then he says in verse 32, no, no, uh, the, boy, the boy isn't with us when we return. My dad's going to die. And then he offers this solution at the end of, of his, his plea here as he pleads for Benjamin's life. He says, look, um, the boy needs to be restored to his father. And so take me in place of the boy and let the boy be restored to his father. Now, what is this? In my mind, this is the fruit of repentance in Judah's life. No longer do we have the Judah who treated his daughter-in-law so poorly and didn't care about the promises of God in, in Genesis 38. No longer do we have the Judah who ignored the cries of his brother as he pleaded for his life in the pit. That Judah is gone. No longer do we have the Judah who didn't really think or care about how Joseph's perceived death would affect his father, that Judah is gone as well. And now we have repentant Judah. And I think there are, again, just these, these crucial truths we learn from Judah's repentance here. We see that there's a need to recognize sin. Judah has come to the place where he recognizes what he did to Joseph was, was sin. 
we see that there's an acknowledging of guilt. You and I, as we think about our relationship with God, need to acknowledge guilt as we think about dealing with things in the past. It's not worth quibbling over details. And one of the signs of a failure to repent is whenever people come to us and say, hey, remember how you did this? Remember this situation? We say, okay, hold on, hold on, let's talk about this. (laughs) Yeah, I did this, but I didn't do this. Or I did this, sure, but I didn't do this. Let's be honest. Don't make me out worse than I am. That's not repentance. The person who's repentant thinks about sins they've committed in the past and says, guilty, guilty. I'm not here to present a defense. I'm not here to present my my opposite evidence to defend myself. I'm not here to call witnesses to show you that there's some extenuating circumstances. The person who's repentant says, guilty, absolutely guilty. You say, well, that still doesn't really seem like it deals with the past. How can we deal with the shame? How can we deal with the guilt? How can we deal with just that that feeling of weight as we think about all these things that we've done? If I'm saying guilty all the time, how do I deal with that? It's by the last part, right? What does a person do? They, They turn to Christ. Judah here turns to Joseph. He turns to this Redeemer and and, and pleads before him. In fact, what we see here is Judah himself offering a a picture of, of Christ. Judah says, okay, um... This boy needs to be restored to his father, therefore take me in his place. What does is, what is Judah's descendant do? You know who Judah's descendant is, right? You know who comes from the line of Judah? It's, it's Jesus. The Messiah, the Messiah says this, this child needs to be restored to his father. This child needs to be restored to his or her heavenly father. They can't do it on their own because of this sin, because of this muck, because of this garbage that's just plopped in their shower floor. Because of all that junk, they cannot be restored to their father. There's nothing they can do. Being shameful won't do it. Acknowledging guilt on its own won't do it. They need to be, this, this child, this boy, this, this girl, this daughter, this son needs to be restored to their heavenly father. Take me. I'm going to offer myself in their place. That's what Judah's descendant does perfectly. And now, and now, take my, this is what Jesus says, now take my clean life, my absolute perfect righteousness, and take this past, take it off the table, and stick my righteousness there. And now look at that. And now I stand before God. On the basis not of my muck, not of my garbage, but of my reality of being in Christ. That's the absolute, complete perfection that God offers us. It's not a perfection that says I can bury my sins deep enough and just pretend that they never existed. It's a perfection that looks to Christ and says, Christ, I believe in his power to deal with this sin. 
And so as I experience shame, I'm not saying I'm so good so I shouldn't feel shame anymore. I'm saying, no, Christ is so good, I shouldn't feel shame because when I feel shame, what I'm saying is Jesus didn't really take care of that. I'm not saying I can, I can look to myself. I'm saying I look and I cling to Christ, my absolute perf- perfect sacrifice. God's salvation, and that's why I say to you, that's why I use the word joyful here. The repentance that God calls us to is not penance. Sometimes when we think of repentance, we think, okay, it's this, it's this sad thing I have to do, and you know, the person who didn't do something bad shouldn't feel bad, they should just cling to Christ and feel joy. But those of us who have to repent should also feel that this is joyful. There should be relationships that you and I have by God's grace where we can continue to acknowledge the reality of our sin together and yet at the same time continue to point each other to Christ. That's why, again, I think care groups are, are so essential to be a part of. Someone asked me recently, I think just this last week, what's your vision for care groups? That this, would, this would be a huge part of it, that there would be relationships in which we can say, yeah, here's where I'm struggling Help me, help me cling to Christ in this. Help me cling to Christ. God's salvation offers freedom from past sin through joyful, Christ-centered repentance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the life that we have through faith in him. We cling to him, trusting in him, coming before you in his name. Give us grace. Give us grace in our relationships with one another to point each other to you for joy. And I pray this in his name. Amen.